0: investors chronicle
1: welcome to the companies and markets show it's thursday the 28th of september as we record The fourth quarter of 2023 is almost upon us. UK indices have actually been showing some relative resilience in recent weeks, so we hope that continues. They've been helped here and there by a renewed mini outbreak of bid activity. And we start the show today by discussing one company that's been subject to a variety of takeover approaches for more than a year now. That's car dealership Pendragon. Then we look at another theme of the past quarter, and hopefully the next one too. Disinflation, our cover story this week, examines the risks and opportunities for investors at a time of falling inflation. And finally, we run the rule over an erstwhile high flyer that was knocked back this month by the news of a CMA competition inquiry, that's VET Services Provider, CVS Group. Joining me to discuss all of this are, over the line, Mark Robinson. Hi, Dan. Dan. And Julian Hoffman. Hi, uh, good morning. Hi, both. And in the studio, Hermione Taylor. Hello. And Jennifer Johnson. Hi, Dan. Hi, everyone. We will begin with Pendragon, as mentioned. Three bidders are now in the mix. Uh, we'll come to that very soon, but there are a lot of other things at play here too. EV wranglings, supply shortages, and the company's interim results themselves. Mark, you covered those. How do they look? Um... Essentially, the results themselves
2: were positive, but um, what was made clear uh, when you go through them is that it's still pretty much a subsector that's in a state of flux at the moment. Now, the Pendragon delivered a decent uplift in uh, like-for-like revenues up by nearly 16% or so, and profits themselves were, were moving ahead up by 9.6%. So, I mean, on the face of it, that that's pretty good. The, the more significant issue is that they did say that new vehicle volume growth had run into double figures uh, during the period, which is a, a very hopeful sign. But as I say, the the, the takeaway is still that it's a, a market in a, in a state of flux. And given some of the topics that we'll probably move on to in a minute, it's not difficult to understand why. I, I mean, they've come out of a Uh, a situation where there was supply constraints uh, linked to um, enhanced uh, environmental strictures in in Europe. Then, of course, uh, there was the semiconductor shortage, which fed into that. And in case we can't remember it, there was also the the small matter of the pandemic too, which uh, was a major disruption to the industry as it was to uh, so many others.
1: Yeah, rings a bell. Before we go into some of these issues, let, let's talk about you know it's kind of coming out the back of some of these problems now. It's you know in recovery perhaps, which might explain why there is so much interest in the business. Uh, there was last year uh, an approach from largest shareholder Headin, which then collapsed at the end of the year. Then a few weeks ago, it agreed to sell part of the business to another suitor. Heading came back in, and now there's the U.S. dealership auto nation as well. Uh, has come in. Do you, do you want to just say a little bit more about about that latest offer?
2: Yeah, it values uh, the company at about thirty-two uh, p a share, but I think that it's, that might be slightly uh, short of the mark. Even though Pendragon has enjoyed a, a decent share price rise, I mean ever ever since really that bidding activity uh, came to the fore, the shares are up about a fifth over the last twelve months. I guess part of the reason. Why they could be coming in now, and alternation themselves. I was um, I was looking at the company, and depending on which way you look at it, it's either the largest or or the fourth largest auto dealer in the states, trades on uh, Nasdaq as well. But those side of after effects that I uh, pointed to before from the pandemic and the semiconductor, what it means is that supply still remains tight at this stage, and the company uh, highlighted. Uh, uh, nearly new vehicle availability is a, a particular issue there, but we have seen that uh, there's been an increase in the uh, fleet registrations and now there's a direct linkage between uh, fleet registrations and the availability of nearly new vehicles on the market that's that's been established over uh, many years, so I guess. I guess with situations about to improve across the board short of any other uh, major disruptions that might explain why AutoNation and uh, indeed the heading group has shown renewed interest in the company too. I did have a look at uh, the share price from uh, my limited uh, technical abilities as well and just prior to the AutoNation bid as well the company's uh, short-term uh, moving average crept above its uh, 200 day one, which is a positive signal. So,
3: I'm um, are uh, reacting, aren't they? Sorry to come in there, Mark, but they're yes. reacting to the fact that, that um, they're now forecasting that unless they uh, alternation goes to 35 peer share, they're not going to beat off the um, joint offer from Hedden and Penske. Liberal analysts this morning are talking about it, but, um, no, but I, I would say there's probably some, some mileage left in this. I don't, I'm not sure that we've seen the last of the bids come in. So, um, you know, investors are obviously taking note of that.
2: Yeah, it's 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 led to a change in the rating over the last year as well. It, I think it trades on uh, about 11 times uh, forward consensus earnings, which is pretty sizable uplift from where it was a year ago. And it's the and it's sort of medium term average as well. I mean, you, you look at it um, like AutoNation itself, it, it's, it's ch- a cheaper option. It, it trades at seven times. Uh, forward earnings and has a much, um, a much more attractive return on equity as well. Uh, so, you know, this this might indicate to a certain degree that the shares may be slightly, slightly overpriced, uh, just on the, on that sort of narrow basis. But when you consider what's happened in the industry overall over the last few years, you know, you you could see that uh, you got we're going to get a little bit more consolidation as as the as the years progress i think partly due to wider issues as well
1: you've seen that i suppose with a you know slightly tangential but you know a bid for lookers a few months ago yeah could be some read across maybe for the likes of Vertu motors the aim listed company as well there's also there's also a tiny company called caffins its own figures are actually quite interesting for the detail they go into an individual dealership so i think it's got some pension deficit problems and, it, and it's you know far smaller on the scale but it might be worth a closer look given some of these trends as well well there's, there's also the issue
2: too uh that the way that the manufacturers themselves go go about you know monetizing their products that's changed too a, lo- a lot of uh sales functions are being brought in-house or there's a strong bias towards digital channels that explains why Pendragon dragon and, and its peers in the markets People talking about this omni-channel offering too, because they can see that whole dynamic changing as as we go forward. I think was it Kia, or was it one of the South uh, Korean manufacturers. I think they were amongst the first to do it, just offering their offering their range online. And I think that's a, that's a growing dynamic in the industry.
1: Obviously, the other big overarching shift is the EV transition, on which there's been plenty of news flow in recent weeks, whether it be the EU versus China or the UK's own changing plans. I mean, in Pendragon's case, as we touch on in a separate article this week, it does have partnership with BYD, the big Chinese EV maker, which is making inroads into Europe. You've been looking a little bit at that, Julian. What what are your takes on, you know, how that transition is going, how it may play out for car makers as well as dealerships?
3: Well, I I think people would probably scratching their heads a bit at recent news flow because the numbers seem to be going in opposite directions. So EV sales are actually down this year compared uh, with last. Mm. Uh, with a certain suspicion that everybody who can actually afford an electric car at the moment has bought one. And, you know, I've never met, an I don't know about you, but I've never met an electric uh, car owner who actually likes their car. I mean, the, the first topic of conversation is always that they can never find a charging point. So there's a bit of catch up to do in the infrastructure for it. Um, I mean, the wider story is is actually really interesting because the EU and, as we mentioned, the EU and China are, are gearing up for a trade fight over EV vehicles. Um, and when we when we say the EU in this context, we actually we're talking about Germany and its electric vehicle industry it doesn't want a situation that happened in the early 2000s where china muscled in on germany's uh, solar panel industry and effectively destroyed it by dumping uh, very cheap uh, solar panels on the market on mass and so the the whole tariff debate is here kick, is kicking off again now so it's a very dynamic and uh, fluid situation and I mean, if you, if you want to link it to the state of the car distributors, I mean, it makes a sense in many ways for somebody to come in and buy them at uh, the kind of crossroads position because they, they'll they end up essentially getting a relatively cheap asset compared with valuations from prior years, just to the point is that they can become distributors of an alternative type of vehicle. So there might be, a, in a sense, a double win uh, on the distribution side. Uh, but for the, the the car market itself, it's not developing. Uh, it's the development is is very uneven, and um, I think a lot of people are probably holding off investing in the in the vehicle until the very last point that you can you can legally buy a, a diesel or a a petrol a engine car solely on the basis of seeing where the technology and the infrastructure is going to be. So that that's really the the broader state of the market and. Uh, I mean, you, you have to be relatively bold, I think, to to make a, a certain call at this point. But um, we will definitely see in the next few months whether the EU is serious about tariffing um, Chinese cars out of the market, effectively.
2: There's a couple of points I'd like to mention as well. Uh, the first being that uh, when you look at the, the sales breakdown in the US, what growth they have had in EV adoption is largely related to fleet sales as well. So that that indicates that US consumers, private US consumers are still somewhat reluctant as you alluded to before, Julian. Another thing as well, I was talking to a friend of mine who's actually uh, in the industry. And uh, he was discussing uh, Jaguar's uh, near-term plans. Jaguar obviously committed to a new EV range by 2025. But what was interesting is that Jaguar at the moment, they, they do have mid-market models starting at about £35,000. It's quite a lot of money, but it's not out of uh, the range for uh, many families up and down the country. The first iteration of their their new model is going to be a four-door grand tourer which is much more in line with uh the cars that they used to produce in the 1950s onwards in other words they're going mm. resolutely up market which seems to suggest to me that they they think there's going to be a bun fight at, at the sort of entry level range for uh, evs and so they're trying as long, to- as
3: long as they got enough room in the boot for the golf clubs isn't it really that's the
2: yeah, well, in the nineteen sixties, a body.
3: <laughs>
2: um, <laughs> but I, I think that's that, that's a, a tacit admission of, of where they
1: see uh, the perhaps the most uh, profitable or um, or less sort of uh, congested end of the market. Just to go back, I suppose to the some of the headline points, Julian. You were talking about you know people are holding off until the last minute. That that deadline has been pushed back in the UK from twenty thirty 2030 to twenty thirty five. The planned ban on the purchase of new petrol and diesel vehicles that does bring it in line with the eu's own deadline most manufacturers though obviously plowing ahead with the ev plans yeah i mean
3: i don't think it has any material effect i mean all it all it might do is it might give uh, the dealers a few more years of petrol profits if nothing else but um the the, the confusingly the government says that the targets stay in place even if the data's shifted so whether the next government decides to shift it back is a a moot point i would say you know the manufacturers basically banking on putting everything by 2030 in place and uh going from there but i mean it's just not a simple changeover i mean you know the target itself is arbitrary as well i mean you can't you can't get lithium for for batteries at the moment that's the, the next big problem and uh, batteries are the main expense in those cars and uh, you know trying to find a reliable source of lithium that doesn't come from China is apparently really quite difficult and uh, yeah so you know there's a lot of issues that have to be resolved before before the changeover happens uh, which is pro- probably again why people are a bit um, uh, agnostic about buying them so quickly.
1: Indeed well uh... I should say i mean i know some electric car owners who are happy with their uh, their product, but uh, maybe that's the difference between living in the city and living in the, the countryside because charging infrastructure is yeah, yes. is an issue uh and there's no doubt this year well it's easier up
3: in it's, it's easier up in that there london isn't it well
1: exactly <laughs> uh, and uh there's no doubt this year that you know the withdrawal of some sales incentives coupled with general cost of living pressure seems to be taking its toll anyway we could probably spend the whole show on a cars, but we're not going to. We're going to move on to our cover story this week, which is on disinflation. We should be, I suppose, clear to begin with that this is not prices falling, alas, this is price growth falling, Hermione.
4: So disinflation is a very confusing word because it sounds a lot like deflation, but it actually just refers to the rate of inflation slowing, and we hope slowing to something much closer to the 2% inflation target.
1: Yeah, so clearly we're in this environment now where we have seen Headline rates come down from you know double digit levels at the end of last year to uh, you know below seven percent, which is a, a sad state of affairs when that's seen as success. Yeah. yeah, when that's seen as uh, good news. But the question really is, how long are we going to take to get back to "quote unquote" normal, i.e., the two percent target? And you know what what the pitfalls might be along along the way. What are the forecasts currently suggesting on that front?
4: Well, the latest Bank of England forecast says that inflation is going to fall um, steadily next year, and then we'll be back to the 2% target by the start of 2025. Now, it's very easy to roll your eyes at this, because the Bank of England has done quite a bad job forecasting, and it's openly admitted that as well. It's kind of assumed that inflation is very symmetrical, so it will come up quickly and go down quickly. Now it's acknowledging that that's not really the case, Um, and it has underestimated inflation before. But I think that there are reasons for optimism and to think that we could see a return to target within the next couple of years. So in September, rate setters held rates constant and they seem confident that interest rates are starting to feed through to the economy now. And they're not alone in forecasting that inflation will fall back down to targets. We've got lots of economists and lots of analysts seeing a similar fall over the next couple of years and getting us back to something if not 2% within the 1% either side kind of tolerance that we have, so kind of to around 3% within the next couple of
1: years. Bumps in the road, to go back to the uh, uh, car analogy perhaps, because (laughs) it might not necessarily be a a straight descent. I mean, August's UK uh, inflation figures were better than expected, but they had been expected to rise again. Uh, Might we see more of that
4: I mean, almost certainly. I mean, this is something that's happened in America as well. They've seen an, an uptick and it's partly thanks to base effects. So we focus a lot on the annual rate of inflation. So when we say inflation's kind of 7%, it should fall to 2%. We're looking at the annual inflation rate and we can kind of think of that as the last 12 figures for monthly inflation kind of stuck together. And each month, the figure from a year ago rolls off, and sometimes this is really flattering. And I think that's what's going to happen in the UK over the next couple of months. So we'll have some very high figures from last year, which is when energy prices were spiking, starting to disappear from calculations, and it will look like our annual rate is falling. But this impact is only expected to last for a few months. So after the end of the year, it might you know we won't have these flattering base effects anymore. And in America, inflation started falling earlier. So they're sort of having the opposite problem now in that some quite low figures from last year are starting to roll off calculations. And that actually contributed to an uptick in their annual inflation rate um, that they saw last month.
1: Some other potential issues could be, on the one hand, you know, oil prices have been going up again in recent weeks. And also structurally, some people think there are structural reasons why inflation could be, you know, a step higher than we've been used to, or certainly in the last decade, but before that as well.
4: I mean, definitely this oil price um, increase is certainly feels worrying. And I'm afraid I'm going to talk about calculating inflation statistics again. But economists now think that the higher oil prices could add about 0.2 percentage points to inflation next month and the month after. But this should be offset by the upcoming fall in the energy price cap. So it's not like it's going to derail our kind of inflation trajectory. This is the kind of thing that uh, economists think is more exciting than normal people. But arithmetically, it's going to be very, very hard for higher oil prices to cause the same kind of shock that it did last year. That's because energy prices are just so much higher now. So it would take a really, really big shock to create the same kind of percentage change that it did last year. This isn't really very reassuring for consumers because energy prices are about double where they were two years ago. But it does mean it would take a huge shock to another big inflation
1: upswing so it's sort of good news i can sense the joy in your voice when you said the word arithmetically there
4: (laughs) i can hardly contain myself
1: what about these these longer-term trends as well you know which might raise you know inflation or keep it elevated you know some of these societal economic shifts we might have to get used to.
4: I mean there's certainly a case um, for structurally higher inflation sort of saying that inflation isn't going to easily go back down to two percent and we're going to have to deal with some something higher in the long term. One of these forces is demographics so if we've got an aging population we'll have fewer workers that will put upward pressure on wages and it could mean higher inflation. There's also this idea that globalization is going into reverse so that could mean higher costs and higher inflation. Some economists think that the combination of those two could mean that we're actually just in a higher inflation environment now but this whole idea of structural forces is quite vague. And then we've got structural forces working in the other direction. So we've written recently about AI and new technology, and there's an argument that that could increase productivity and that could drive inflation lower again. And we could see a return to this kind of very low inflation environment that we enjoyed before the pandemic. It's quite interesting that central bankers seem to be very tough on getting back to the 2% inflation target. So we had a, a Bank of England rate setter saying just a few weeks ago that the target is 2% and not 3%. So it seems that even though there's a lot of talk about inflation being higher or maybe even a higher inflation target, at the moment that, that doesn't really seem to be on the cards. Yeah,
1: well, they've definitely got to try and talk a good game or keep, keep trying. trying, yeah, trying keep it, yeah, inflation yeah.
4: expectations lower. But for now, it looks like 2% is, 2% is still the name mm. of the game.
1: And the question for investors, of course, is what does this mean uh, in terms of assets? I mean, one thing we talk about in the piece is obviously bonds potentially you know, become a little bit more attractive now that A, you can get a good yield of them and B, you might not lose so much. You might not be ravaged by inflation so much, frankly. But there was also some interesting research from UBS on the kind of company or specific companies that might do well in a disinflationary environment specifically? Yeah, so
4: there was some really good research from UBS that looked at how different sectors respond to lower inflation rates. And um, they found that consumer discretionary and healthcare and communication services do very well. And we could probably expect in this cycle that retailers might start doing a bit better, especially if we see in the UK at least like, wages rising higher than inflation. Um, some of the losers that turned up in the UBS study were actually energy companies and financials. But this is a bit complicated in this cycle, because as we've seen, oil prices have ticked up again. So it might mean that they actually don't do as badly this time around as they have done in other periods of disinflation.
1: And the other uh, quandary, I suppose, for policymakers is, you know, they are set on getting us back to this 2% target. However, if they raise rates too far, we could end up with inflation falling below 2%, below zero even. It seems strange to talk about such things right now. But but that is what's currently being forecast as well.
4: I mean, it seems uh, um, kind of a million miles away worrying about inflation falling below target. But the Bank of England does produce quite long term projections and their projections actually show inflation going below the 2% rate. Um, and they also kind of produce um, these things called fan charts, which show a range of um of outcomes that they think are feasible. If we start looking ahead to, I think it's 2026, we actually see deflation appearing in these fan charts as, a, as an outcome that the Bank of England thinks could actually you know, happen. It's not a high chance, but it is possible. So I think, I mean, after what we've seen over the past couple of years, we have just got to be aware that inflation has really surprised us. Um, and there's a chance, I suppose, that it, that it could do again.
1: Well, we'll keep our eyes peeled for that, I'm sure. Well, we'll we'll all be aware if we uh, if inflation turns negative, because this is one of those topics that you can't escape from. Nonetheless, we are going to move on now to our final segment, which is talking about the AIM-listed CVS Group, a veterinary services supplier. If you want to use that technical phrase, you know it had some figures the other day. Things still look fairly good on that level, but there is the shadow of this CMA investigation into competition in the vet market, which really knocked the shares back quite a lot earlier this month, Jen.
0: Yes, it did. So shares are down sort of really nearly 30% in the past month, which is, as you said, out of step with the company's actual financial performance. Uh, when the company released its full-year figures earlier this month, um, pre-tax profit was up 50%, earnings per share are up more than 60%, the dividend has been increased. All of these things are universally positive in isolation, but investors are clearly anticipating uh, this reckoning in in the pet sector here in the UK.
1: And what will that reckoning look like is the big question, the unanswerable question, perhaps. The CMA, you know, it's been involved in this sector before. It's looked at a previous CVS deal, Hmm. which it didn't wave it through. CVS had to divest uh, um, some assets. But you would think maybe on the back of that that it would have a good understanding already of, of what's going on in the sector. Nonetheless, what can we expect?
0: Yes, I think that's the big question um, at the moment. And this review that has recently been announced is sort of um, pegged to the cost of living crisis, really, and whether pet owners are being adequately informed about prices and treatment options when they take their animals to the vet. I think it's fair to say that most people in this country don't actually have a great deal of choice in veterinary providers, and this is sort of where the CMA comes in. More than half of the UK vet market is now controlled by six companies, of which CBS is one. Four of the others are owned by private equity firms, while the other is a subsidiary of pets at home. Independent vet practices, that is, you know, those are practices that are actually owned by by vets themselves, accounted for 90% of the UK veterinary industry less than 10 years ago, but things have changed really rapidly. Independent practices do still exist, but they're less likely to offer things like 24-hour emergency care, lab services. The attractive thing about these larger chains is that they're everywhere. It's a matter of scale and, and convenience really, for pet owners. So it does make sense that the CMA is interested in this sector as it has changed so quickly. And there are now really only a handful of, of firms competing for, for business.
1: The the flip side of this, perhaps from CVS point of view, is when you look at their figures, which are still pretty strong, and when you consider the demand for veterinary services has obviously shot up as people have got more pets over the last few years. Are they a business which could weather an economic downturn and if so does that does that perhaps incriminate them to an extent because it suggests that you know a degree of pricing power that the CMA might disapprove of?
0: Yeah and I guess when we're talking about the degree of pricing power here what we're you know what you're actually talking about is the fact that people will prioritise the health of their pets especially people in this country where you know it's kind of a cliche about the British isn't it but our pets um, you know dogs and cats really are our, our family members and we treat them As such. So the pet care sector is thought of as being defensive, kind of on a par with things like consumer health care, you know, the parents are, for example, less likely to um, trade down when they're looking for medicine for their kids. They're more likely to buy, you know, name brand Calpol and prioritise that above other things. The same is true of pet owners. They prioritise spending on their pets over luxuries for themselves. So they might trade down at the supermarket, say, uh, and start buying own brand foods or look to go on a cheaper holiday if money is tighter. But they don't usually uh, scrimp on vet care for a sick or injured pet. So the kind of cynical way of looking at that is that some of these veterinary companies are perhaps taking advantage of that fact uh, and that, you know, you're sitting there at the vet, you know, your dog is on the table being examined, you're not likely to say, actually, maybe not. That's really where the the CMA is is looking to survey pet owners, really.
1: Mm. Nonetheless, some analysts including, unsurprisingly, the house broker, but not limited to the (laughs) house broker, do you think that uh, CVS doesn't have as much to fear from this as the share price fall would suggest?
0: Yeah, I think nothing is going to change those defensive qualities that we've talked about. And we don't actually know what the CMA will or will not do. It says it will provide a further update on the review in early 2024. So it's all quite early stage at the moment. It's not outside the realms of possibility that the regulator could go after vet sector profits, but that doesn't change the number of pets in this country. That doesn't change the fact that more people than ever have a pet after lockdown. Uh, and it doesn't change the fact that we're a nation of pet lovers. So I think there is a kind of bullish argument that that um, people have really overreacted to the announcement of this review. These are all quite vague terms and you start kind of stacking them up, right? Um, so... There's, you know, the, the VET sector could yet prove it's resilient, even if the CMA were to sort of do do the worst possible thing and, and really come down hard on these companies.
1: I was looking at some figures this morning, actually, from Liberum as well about the relative pricing. You know, the, the, the big corporates, as you'd expect, are more expensive than the independents by about 20% on average. However, CVS was among the cheapest of the uh, corporates, according to Liberum. So perhaps that gives them uh, something to to play with there as well. What what about uh, Pets at Home? Uh, You you mentioned, you know, they own a vet's business too. Their shares were hit to a lesser extent, maybe 10% or so. Obviously, they have other strings to their bow. Is it a similar scenario for them, really, where fears might be overplayed. Um,
0: this is kind of interesting, really, because initially you think, oh, well, Pets at Home, that's primarily a retail business. However, growth recently has been fueled by Pets at Home's veterinary division. Uh, and the retail business has, has been suffering a little bit, um, you know, as cost of living pressures have, have gone up. Yet the markets reacted or investors reacted more favourably to uh, Pets at Home and in relation to the the CMA announcement, even though... Pets at home is also very very dependent on its vet business um for kind of for growth going forward so yeah that's just a I guess that's one of those quirks where even if um you know even if you are Aren't that aware of pets at home? You're aware of pets at home as a you know the, a business in the retail park. Perhaps not as aware of it as a as a vet provider.
1: Yeah, Libram seem to think. I mean, I'm leaning heavily on this one <laughs> table that I looked at this morning, but they seem to think that the vets for pets—that's the pets at home business—is is you know cheaper than uh, some independents as well. So maybe that's uh, helpful for them. Mm. Do you know the uh, owner of the vet that you use? I know you've had to go to the vet recently for your cat.
0: Yes, I do. It's one of, a, it's a, one of the private equity companies. Oh, and that
1: explains the expense.
0: Yes, it does explain the expense. So I will say, um, as a pet owner, um, get a nice insurance policy. Maybe that's another area we should explore. What's the pet insurance market looking like yeah. at the moment?
1: Well, I think listed, <laughs> listed pet insurers are uh, maybe few and five between, but <laughs> maybe it won't be long until that happens.
0: Yes, clearly.
1: Uh, on that positive-ish kind of note. We have unfortunately come to the end of the show uh, so thank you very much to Jen, to Hermani to Mark and to Julian and thank you to you for listening. We'll see you next time on another Companies and Markets show.